Episode 1 of Whistleblowers, the podcast series that aims to bring you the information from the fringes, the information that you don't hear in mainstream media. This podcast series will take you to the fringes of today's society and will be backed up by decades of evidence from experts and people with an interest in the unsolved crimes of the world. This morning we're talking to Judy and Judy is giving us a little update on information that she's been looking at for several years now in the William Tyrrell case. We've changed the names to keep the anonymity of the people involved but this case remains unsolved and is possibly New South Wales longest running unsolved murder disappearance and is very popular in the public's eye. So good morning Judy. Good morning. Uh, I've known you for a little while now and we've been sitting down and chatting about various cases and uh, you came up with the idea of this podcast series Whistleblowers and uh, some of the things that I've heard you talk about over the years and the anecdotes and the real life stories that you've uh, presented to me and others that we've met. I mean, um, I go away from our chats and probably like the listener at the moment, um, I'm left with possibilities. Uh, Some of the things that you're talking about seem rational and plausible and I wonder why aren't the authorities dealing with these issues. So we'll move on here and uh, this morning you just want to bring us up to date with what's happened in the last week with the William Tyrrell case. So uh, maybe if we change the people's names, just give them another first name like Judy. Okay. Uh, What happened the other day? Who came over and what's developing there? Oh, well, a detective wanted to talk to me and we chat about my research mm. about once every six weeks to two months, sometimes three monthly. And she normally just appears either at the door, rings me, or have a question. Mm. It may not be anything really, but it may be something I've seen or connected into or the timelines. Because I'm down to nine minutes mm. on my timeline for William Terrell disappearance. Right. So that's not very much time for when they've picked up the purse, picked up the child and taken it. Mm. You know, so you start to think there's some some links that the police have not exposed to the general public, which normally does happen. But you start to wonder whether they've exposed it within the evidence within themselves. that don't know the sad story about William Tyrrell. Born in 2011, he's an Australian boy who disappeared at the age of three from Kendall, New South Wales, on the 12th of September, 2014. He'd been playing at his foster grandmother's house with his sister and was wearing a Spider-Man suit at the time of his disappearance. Tyrrell is believed to have been abducted Despite extensive investigations as of 2020, Tyrrell has not been found. And his abductors identified 
On September 2016, a reward of $1 million was offered for the recovery of Tyrrell and does not require the arrest, charging or conviction of a person or persons. Today you're going to hear some information that's never been told before uh, via Judy, our correspondent and researcher and whistleblower in the story of William Tyrrell. So Judy, uh, we've been talking about the William Tyrrell case for quite some time now and here we are in June of 2020 and the Sydney media and citizens have been watching a number of arrests unfold over the last week. So um, what information can you bring to light for us about what's unfolding and, and what's ahead with the William Tyrrell case? What they haven't really linked to on the William Terrell case is the drug network. Though the mother, the biological mother, and the biological father were both involved. They didn't link it in because he was with the foster parents. But an interesting scenario is the foster father had worked at the Bourbon and Beef in King's Cross as a chef. And that's not common knowledge, and and it should be out there. So the foster father... Yeah. He was, you know, in care of William Tyrrell at the time. Uh, was at the time working there or had no, previously? In his younger days. Yes. Yes. So when I wrote to the foster parents some time back to say I'm after this police search warrant, I've sent my evidence to the police. Mm. And the police are waiting for either the biological parents or the foster parents to ask for this police search warrant. Neither one have done that. And for those that don't know, the bourbon and beef steak is a very large uh, entertainment venue uh, situated right in the middle of Sydney's King's Cross area. And it is a massive club with three levels of uh, bars and entertainment nightclub areas and anybody that knows the bourbon beef steak knows that well it once was and possibly still is the place to go to you know as they say have a quiet drink and get to know associates as you might say uh, in the in the King's Cross or some could say the underworld of Sydney so this is fascinating information Jennifer uh, so the Bourbon and Beef was at 22 Darlinghurst Road. Right. This gang links to numerology, like, because um, yeah. it's controlled by an Asian lady. Right. And the 22 is also the 22 parts of the skull. Right. So numerology, yes, go on. So, so you start... I started to find a pattern in the unsolved murders mm. and the drugs would be always around them. Really? It didn't, know, it didn't matter whether the people were using themselves or not, mm. but the drugs are like, we're two degrees away from it. Your neighbour could be on it mm. or it could be people down the street, mm. but still there was some connection. Now, how many years have you been, right from the start really, haven't you, when William disappeared? Even before that, you've known about these... uh, This gang, yes. I knew about this gang back in 2009. I went with Axel into King's Cross to work it all out. Mm -hmm. 
I can't pull something apart if I can't see it. Correct. So that was something that I needed a tangible leads maybe or just seeing the environment and how people worked the body language the way the system worked I had not much to do with the drugs prior to that except working in the medical industry working where people would be tested for AIDS or heroin addiction uh, what the heroin had done to their family lives in the past but when I was about six we had a my grandmother had a unit at Oatley mm. and the guy was from the tote cutter gang that rented it. Oh. So and I at that time I can remember What time are we talking about? What we're talking about the nineteen fifties or No, it would have been late sixties. And it was, the tote cutters were a club, were they, or a group, they, or a gang? They were a gang, and mm. they linked from Melbourne to Sydney. Mm. Um, but he'd only be there at that unit a couple of nights a week. Right. And we could tell by the pill packets yeah. and the little, you know, Tuesdays or Wednesdays that were constantly filtered on the carpet. So amazing links now. We could go right back into the history of King's Cross and maybe in another episode we will yeah. because you've got great stories there. We'll have a short break and uh, just keep in mind that Judy knows um, quite a lot of, shall I say, colourful characters or identities from the King's Cross area and we'll go on with our story with William Tyrrell after this break. Oh. Okay. So I'm really making it hard for you here today, Judy. We're going to finish up now because we've got more episodes to come. But can you just tell us, you know, this foster father who used to work at the bird and beef steak, as you revealed. Uh, not many people know that. And uh, the detectives occasionally just turn up on your door uh, just to glean some information about what you've been researching. And um, So what are your thoughts on the William Tyrrell disappearance and you know what's happened in the last week with these arrests and you know what's what's in your mind as to what has happened and where this is going well the the sex crime uh that was happening that just got busted up in um kendall area i believed had been going on before that and i actually wrote that to the police and i was one of the first people that wrote about that linking it into this um pedophile gang yeah but they think they're the knights of the round table right and they could be upright citizens for some of them exactly but at the end of the day there's a lot of um not so much children gone missing because kendall is a little bit out of the way i've never been there yes kendall yeah but it's, it's interesting that I met a lady who linked into the rebels whose father was at Port Macquarie. Right. And she had a lot of um, property just vanish after his death right. that he didn't own. She knew that. But why was it in her father's name? Right. And that was a definite key to the rebels. Right. That I worked on. And she also links to two detectives that were in the Strike Force Raptor 
Right. And also her boyfriend, she talked about would um, pick up containers that would be delivered to a frozen food company at Fairfield. So for those that don't know, Kendall was originally named Camden Heads. It's situated uh, about an hour north of Sydney and is on the coastline or just inland from the beautiful Port Macquarie area. It's a very luscious, uh, bushy area and there's very remote pockets. So Jennifer, go on, you were just going to enlighten us with yeah, well, what happened. The, the coroner has been given a 2,000 page brief of evidence from... Uh, mm. Gerard Craddock. Yes. Who's the counsellor? The counsellor up there. Yeah. yeah. Um, they they go back to the the last known time that they can put for William being alive, and they go to a photograph of him on the veranda. Yep. That the police had thought was the time was nine thirty seven. But actually, if you look at those pictures and with the daughter in the background, mm. could they be pyjamas? Yes. Then the other time that was on the image was 7.39am that the police dismissed. Right. So, like, they then have to t- do the timeline back to 7.38 mm. to, to prove that he was alive at that time. And to the daughter. And why did William just go missing and not the daughter is a question in itself that the police, I don't think, have put enough emphasis on. Wow, so there you go, folks. That's our researcher, investigator and whistleblower, Judy, in this first episode of Whistleblowers. We'll return to the William Tyrrell case again soon. I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Whistleblowers. Please stay tuned and if you like us, please subscribe via the Anchor uh, app and our YouTube channel, Whistleblowers. We'll be back soon for more cases for Judy and others to investigate. Welcome to Whistleblowers, Episode 2, The Horrific Amityville Murders. In November of 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. slew his entire family and inspired one of the greatest horror stories of all time, The Amityville Murders. Good morning, Jennifer. Uh, I'm going to reveal your real name today. Jennifer is our author, journalist, investigative detective and profiler here on Whistleblowers. Just to mention this uh, amateurville story can send chills down a person's spine. We've heard about it in Hollywood, Time magazine's reported on it. This is a story that still lingers on in the minds of many and today you've got some information for us and an angle on this story that's never really been reported before. What what would you like to say to the listeners? Well, Butch Defoe 
he actually said he murdered all his family, but was it a psychosis? Did he really do it or did he believe he did it? And then you have to go back through. And in 2012, there was another gun found behind the house that has brought up new questions. Was there two people involved? Did they get everybody? Or is there a murderer still available for hire? Well, fantastic news, you know, uh, because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening there that would agree with you. Uh, a lot of people believe that, you know, in the original story, we, we were told the Lutz family, you know, bought that house uh, after the original murders and so-called convictions. And uh, people said that it was still commonly held belief that that story was fabricated. Yes, so, all for the money. All for the money. Yeah. So, and if you look at any of the unsolved murders, there's money. There's a money key within it all, whether it was uh, fighting over drug money. And if you go through the story, Butch had a heroin problem. Uh, some said that. He even said he was using, mm. though he tested um, clear for like six months from June to October prior to the murders. He had only shown up quinine twice in a urine test. So this is factual evidence and evidence that, well, you know, the average person like me doesn't spend the time researching and this is why you're so well-known and popular uh, on the fringes of detective work because they come knocking on your door when they can't solve a crime. Hollywood wants us to believe that there was an evil presence residing in the house and that ghosts were lurking around every corner and that people who live in the house today, this is what Hollywood wants us to believe. But, you know, you've got more information here that just proves... But was Hollywood the red herring? Right. To, to hide the real evidence? So you go through Butcher's story... Mm. And it changed. I think I got 12 variations of what he had told the police over the period of the time, even changing on the day in the trial of what had happened. So was he trying to make the murders fit a story scenario within his own head? Mm. Keeps coming to mind. Uh, Butch had not gone to sleep in his bed that night. He was in the TV room beside his parents. He never heard the gunshots. He does say he got up a couple of times, saw the wheelchair of his brother who had a, a football injury at the toilet, but he never really said it was gunshots, nor his gun. Mm. But then he went through on different scenarios at different times, saying it was Dawn who had done it and... He kept referring to another person that was in the house. But that other person, when I went back through all the evidence, had never been found, never been questioned. His name was um, Ronald Romanio Rulo. And Rulo was the key name that was hidden. But Butch had a wife at the time, Geraldine Defoe who had been Romado Rulo. And that was also, it was wiped. His marriage certificate was wiped. 
because the authorities couldn't find it. But it was like two crime families had married together at that time, the Rulos and the Defos. And Geraldine had known Peter Defo, which was like a commoner, commando within the underworld, who was Butcher's uncle, but didn't know that that was Butcher's uncle. Like, did not know that there was some link there. Wow. Now, through the stories of the Amityville house being haunted, a subject to debate, as you're saying, there is very little doubt that Ronald DeFeo Jr. was present for the mass murder of his family in the home. But the question still lingers, is the Amityville house really haunted? Well, I don't think it is haunted. Right. I think it was made up. Uh, I think the Lutz family did it to make money out of it, to sell a story, because he bought it, and it was quite cheap at the time, but he only was there 28 days and never spent, like, money on it. He actually bought it with the furniture still in the house and even, you know, would lie in their same beds. You know, maybe they've had new mattresses, but I don't know whether you'd actually sleep in a bed that someone else was murdered in. Exactly. And so, you know, what we do know is that there could have been some sort of book deal done uh, through lawyers and this story captivated the nation and, and the world. And, you know, as a kid I remember growing up scared of this Annabelle horror story that was emerging and uh, totally overlooking the evidence. And what you're telling us now uh, is quite revealing and it's really never been told before, has no, it? No. There, there was a DEA agent, a drug enforcement agent, sitting out the front of the house mm. or just down the street or something. He could watch the house. Mm. Now, that evidence really wasn't before the courts. Wow. And he actually had noted when Butch came home to when Butch went to work mm-hmm. To Dawn had gone out driving and came back. And he kept all these this on records? Yes. And then you go to the coroner's report for the autopsies and the time of deaths were 8pm to 10pm. What time did Butch come back? Mm. You start to wonder. And then did he have a friend with him at that time? Or was the friend at home at that time? This is what this we... This is that Ronald Rulo. Right. And this brings in the crime family Yes, yes. What have you discovered on that? Well, there's links. The Rulo family were into the mafia over there and they had been using the Buick dealership that Butcher's grandfather had on his mother's side. And the boat that Butch had in the boat shed, he would use to go out to, it was called Rum Row, which was three miles off shore. Rum Row. Rum Row, where the boats would line up and they'd get their heroin and that, or cocaine or whatever it was, over the side of the ship. And he'd come back to home and then put his boat away and then load it up and take it to the dealership. Seems as a, a very easy scenario. This is the same scenario that Al Capone was using 
Wow, it is very so, similar, isn't it? Yeah, so so you start to think. And then when you go through the history of Peter Defo, he links to Pier 14 to a company that was known in America for the underworld trade as United Fruit Company. Wow. So this goes much bigger than some sort of uh, small town innocent murder. This has connections that uh, go back to you know, the great uh, prohibition days of the mafia and things like this. Yes. And if they legalise the drugs, would all this underworld thing just disappear? I think so. The crime would reduce. Okay, Jennifer, the uh, DEA officer that you told me about saw the gunfire. What, what did you uncover there? Well, I thought if he saw the flashes in the windows, he would have known what time that was. You would think he would note that. He, in, in his program, he should have been noting who was coming and going at the premises. And they had thought there was major drug dealing happening from that house. So then you start to think, well, if you see the flashes and he knows sounds, there's got to be a silencer. Then you go back to the evidence of the bullets and I couldn't see where the bullets matched the bullet from the gun that they thought was Butch Defoe's wow. gun. The ballistic you've seen, yeah. ballistic reports. It didn't seem to match. Wow. But it did say that it came from the same type of gun. So you start to think if someone knew what guns were in the house, they could come in with one with a silencer on. And then that's becomes a trophy because that will match up to the evidence. Even it may be just the silencer on the end that would be enough to keep for the way the bullets exited. And, and what do you think has happened there that the gunfire was possibly by another person who we don't know? Is there another person in the house? Yes. Another person, which um, Butch didn't come out about for many years afterwards. He said it was a Fulani or Tony Mazio. But um, Geraldine Defoe, his wife at the time, who had a child called Stephanie that he believed was his, and others gave evidence under affidavit that it was his daughter. Um, they didn't really link the two together during the trial. Geraldine did not see Butch during the year that he was in prison or during the trial period. She didn't come back onto the scene until years later. So that gave that person who she made out was her brother, but it could have been a cousin, it could have been anyone. Returning to the Amityville story, Jennifer, you've just briefly mentioned Mark Perrette, is it? Yes, Perrette. Uh, people might not know about Mark Perrette, but uh, you've had contact with Mark. And tell us about Mark Perrette. Who is he and what has he encouraged you to do and why? Well, he actually came forward after I did my John F. Kennedy research. And he asked for my research on that to put forward to the Texas board on James Files 
to see if he could allegedly stop the release of James Files and to reopen the case on John F. Kennedy assassination. So then he came back to me when he thought about getting an appointment to see Butch Defo and to ask him about what happened at the murders and to see what he knew and to reopen it like there may be another murderer that's on the loose. So I guess he's doing that from the point of view like a good detective would do. My understanding of detective work is when there's a case that's got uh, holes in it like this one yeah. has, I mean... You know, we've been led to believe it's a haunted house and I believe they're still running tours in the town. You can go and tour the house and it's like, woo, woo. Uh, yeah. This guy, he's a good detective or whatever uh, because they entertain all options and he obviously believes that what he's hearing from you matches up with something that either he has a hunch about or they generally know about. So um, where do you see that heading? Well, he had the case for a while. I think he might have actually studied it through the law during his coming um, to the prosecutor's office. But he actually had um, evidence and it wasn't making sense to him. He knew there were holes in it, mm. but he couldn't figure out what he was missing. Mm. And that's why he asked me to do some research just to do a report for him not to put any ghosts or spirits in it Good. and to keep it factual Yes. and to keep my backups. So for all the files I read through to create my books, I keep a copy of them mm. so that those can be utilised by other researchers mm. if needed for further down the case. So we're listening to Whistleblowers here, second episode on the Amityville murders. Jennifer, obviously there's more to tell in this story and people listening will no doubt be keen to find out what you uncover with your connections in the US. So where are we up to and uh, what do you think will happen now over in the States with... Uh, your friend and your contact, Mark Perret. Well, Mark Perret's got an appointment to see Butch wow. Defo in January of next year. Wow. And on that, he's supposed to ask him questions regarding the evidence, uh, look at the different pictures, you know, of the guns, of the bullets, and to go into it all. Mm. He's gone ahead and bought the same sort of gun and he's going to do his own ballistics report on it and for the sound because he reckons it's deafening. Wow. So if it was a deafening sound, the neighbours should have heard. Everyone would have heard it. That's right. So you've got to know that there's a silencer. Then you go through the crime photos and where was the boat? Yeah. It wasn't in the boat shed. No. And then you go through where the police actually found the rifle and it was at the mouth of the canal. And when you find how long that canal is, it's a, it's a long it's stretch. It's a long way. Yeah, so you would have had to go there by boat. Mm. And then when you start to think about it, if that boat was left somewhere and then brought back to the house, well, then there was more involved than just Butch, because he had already been taken off to the police station, yes. charged and, and in prison. But 
it's not until years later where he sues his family for his boat. And that's how I found out about the boat that should have been in the boat shed. Right. was a 19-foot sea ray. Right. So it would be interesting to ask Butch, where was the boat? And you, this information you've passed on to Mark, he will include yes. your research in the interview when he gets a chance to speak to Butch. Yes, but it's already begun to the police okay. in that area. Okay. Yeah, we can't be playing detective without sharing the evidence. Very good, yeah. Yeah, Jennifer. And on that note, whilst the tours still go on in Amityville and people are led to believe this was all a ghost story, Jennifer, our private detective here in Australia, journalist, author and profiler and storyteller, <laughs> is unveiling the truth. Please stay tuned to Whistleblowers. This episode will continue, no doubt, when we return to the Amityville Horror and Jennifer updates us on not only what's happening with uh, Mark Perrette but any other information that she gleans through her network of uh, private eyes and uh, fellow authors and journalists throughout the world. So thanks again, Jennifer. Uh, Thank we you. We look forward to joining us again on Whistleblowers. Thank you. Oh, that, that sounds 